This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for December 14th, 2021. Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about video games. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and as always, I'm very glad you're here. Today, we're doing another clip show. Last year, we played some of our favorite moments from the interviews we did in 2020, and now we're going to do the same for 2021, with the added wrinkle that we are Smash Brothers ultimating it this year, which is to say everyone is here. We are going to play a clip from every single interview we did this year. I'm going to sit here, play these tapes, make a few comments, enjoy a few beverages. Should be a nice chill time. By the way, in uh, in the interest of not alienating anybody who does not drink for whatever reason, and also because this might take a while and I don't want to be fully verschneckered by the end, I'm starting with some blueberry sodas from up in Bar Harbor, Maine. Good stuff. Okay, let's get started. Our first interview of the year was with Chell Wong, who was on to talk about her audio work on Watch This Space and Only Cans, Thirst Date. Here, she's talking about the fine art of networking. Uh, sort of underappreciated art, and audio folks' not entirely undeserved reputation for being kind of bad at it. It is something that one works on, and it, mm-hmm. it, you fumble on it, and like game audio people have a terrible reputation of, hey, does your game need music? And then you're just that person, and they're like, no, our game's launching in a month. Like, well, of course we don't. Um, and we get we get a bad rep across the across the um the industry as it is already because, uh, you know, we're just kind of desperate people. So, is, that, I mean, that, do you, that, do you feel that, like that stereotype is warranted to a certain degree just because oh, there's there's a let me tell you. Yeah, let me tell you, I was like potentially going to try and start a, a game studio. I don't think that's actually happening. But hey, you know, like it was a it was something that I wanted to entertain the idea of. And I and I, I worked with some friends and um, we made a game and it's going to come out eventually. But I can't talk about it just yet. But uh, uh, essentially, though, when I'm like, hey, I, I had like this, this spark of inspiration and I was just like really into it i'm like no let's let's just fucking do it like you know everything comes from something like you know like super giant didn't just become super giant it, it built over 10 years plus you know totally. um every indie studio that you know about that you love and adore started from something like what if this is our something and it might not be and that's fine but when i was like who wanna, who wants to make a game studio with me like three or f- to five audio friends was like hey if you need like music or sound and i'm like i love you so much but no i'm the audio person i'm doing this because i need i need work right. and i'm looking for work and i'm trying to start opportunities go do it yourself if you want to uh, not to be mean but like please if they do it to me they do it to everyone and not not, not those people specifically sure, I, I, sure. They, they did it they did it because they trusted me and they're my friend a lot of people do it to people they don't know and and it's just like it's hard. Sometimes yeah. you feel like you got a cold call. Sometimes you do have to cold call. But also, it is fair to not like getting cold called and cold emails and all that stuff. And like, it's a fine line to walk. It is. It is on both sides, right? Because on the, you want to you want to solicit people who are talented and interested, but you you don't want to make yourself so open that you get your ear talked off at all times. And on the other side, you you want to put yourself out there, but the shotgun approach, like you said, can be both a little bit skeezy and not necessarily that the most effective way to do it. 
So yeah, it's it's definitely a fine line, uh, which is why it can be good to bond over other shared interests. You have mentioned Smash a couple of times. I have heard you talk a fair bit about falling out of love with Smash Four. I have heard you talk less oh, about I falling in love with it. I tried to like it and I played it and it just felt terrible. And then badly I played phrased. more. Badly phrased. Worse. Every single time I play that game, it just feels bad and worse and awful. Badly phrased. I meant fell out of love with Smash as a result of Smash okay, 4. Fair. <laughs> yes. And then came back on board. I've, I've heard you talk less about coming back on board with Ultimate, um, which which you said you have, and that's awesome. Yeah. If you want to hear about Chell falling in love with Smash Brothers Ultimate, because they gave her K. Rule, uh, her love of heavies and fighting games in general, and plenty else besides, check out that interview. Next up, we have Bryant Young, who was on the show to talk about his VR experience, Our America. By the nature of that piece, we also sort of had to talk about race and racism in America. So as you join this conversation, we are talking about Angela Y. Davis's absolutely incredible book, Are Prisons Obsolete? Yeah, it's really, everything she wrote is amazing, but that one, it's just so clear. Like, it's it's one of the most, like, incredibly well-argued books I've ever read, where it's just like, she's like, okay, here are all the reasons you might think the mass incarceration system is a good idea. I will now take them apart. <laughs> I've, I've never actually seen someone like, you know, the phrase owned with facts and logic gets thrown around <laughs> on the internet a lot. That is, she, she completely destroys <laughs> the arguments with, with facts and logic. It's incredible. Yeah. But the problem is like the people who need to read that book probably aren't going to read that book. Like right. books like that should be a part of a curriculum. Like I'm like, I'm sure there's, there's a reason that I'm reading Shakespeare and old English that I don't understand, but I mean, I'd much rather have read that in high school than, than Shakespeare. It's wild that a civics class doesn't read this book. It's crazy because we, we learn, we, you know, we learn about the civil rights movement, but we learn it as like people were bad. And then five guys in suits asked, asked nicely for it to be fixed. And then it was fixed. Like that's the way it gets taught in public schools. And the, the, that's not what happened. Ameri- the American history is so washed down and watered down to like what actually happened and how many people had to actually die for like just a little bit of change. Like, it's amazing that it, it like civil rights was a thing. Like just the fact that that was a thing and the fact that that was like 60 years ago is amazing to me because it's not like people were saying, um, hey, we want more rights. You were just like, hey, could you like probably not, you know, shoot us with water hoses and just kind of like let us eat, it'd be nice. And people were like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> what? Yeah. No, the, the, the most, most white people thought that was a bridge too far and this is too much change too quickly and had all these, the, all the same arguments you hear now about Black Lives Matter and all that stuff where it's like, well, I, I basically agree with what you're saying, but do you have to, do you have to be so pushy about it? Like just the same ridiculous stuff about, like you said, just wanting to have lunch, like, like really not, not out there. It's, it's not like black people are saying, hey, don't like interact with us cops. It's saying like, hey, if you're going to interact with us, maybe just don't kill us. Yeah, that'd be cool. Like you can give us a ticket. Just don't kill us. We would yeah, really yeah, like yeah. that. I think when the uh, when the January 6th, um, I think we're still looking for the right word for it. The Capitol riot, the Capitol, the domestic terrorism, oh whatever gosh. you want to call it. When that happened, there was a broad reaction that was like, oh, it looks like cops can use restraint. And I think that was misinterpreted by, you know, maybe willfully, maybe, maybe in bad faith, maybe earnestly by some people as, oh, you're saying you wish the cops had shot these people. And maybe some people feel that way, but that wasn't the broader point. The point was, no, 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 look, the cops can be in a serious situation and not immediately shoot, right? Like that is obviously possible and it, it would be possible in other situations where in fact they do start shooting. 
it's it's amazing that you said that because a lot of people are taking it as saying hey you should be treated like us when in reality a lot of people are saying we want to be treated the same way you're treated yeah and the fact that people get angry at the thought of being treated like someone else means they know something's wrong and that something's not and that something's happening that shouldn't be happening but they refuse to do anything about it anyways that is like the real scary part is that people are scared to be treated like someone else but they're not willing to change society so that no one gets treated that way. I consider it really important to talk about the stuff that inspires games, the stuff games are addressing, the process of making them, and so on. But it's important to note, we do just talk about game design itself on the show as well. For example, when we had Chris King on to talk about the Mega Man X-ish roguelike 30XX, he talked a fair bit about why it was a priority to ship the game, even in early access, with a level editor. So the hope behind the editor is that it's sort of, we, we have two kind of primary goals for it. One, uh, we wanted sort of, well, three primary goals. Uh, one, we wanted a, a robust set of editor tools for us to use internally. So the tools that we've released are the li literally the exact same tools that we use for building say, the game's kind of core level set. Uh, so one, you know, we wanted to make sure that we had a better toolkit for this for us because we knew we wanted to sort of step up our level design game this time around. So on 20XX, I made all of the level chunks myself. Uh, I used uh, the tile map editor. I wrote custom TMX files for it. I wrote a parser for all that stuff. Uh, it was it was bad. It was unintuitive. Uh, it was not easy for other people to use. Uh, so this time around, you know, we have much more talented level designers than me uh, handling that stuff for me, uh, and fantastic editing tools for them to work with to increase, you know, their, you know, this sort of uh, it's 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 not just about productivity. It's it's also about morale, right? Like you, mm. it's you enjoy your work a lot more when less of it is scut work, right? Like if if half of your you know time spent designing and building levels is spent like fighting with with shitty tools, uh, you're a lot less happy about what you do than if you have this like really smooth, intuitive editor to use, right? Um, so so that's that's sort of goal one as far as our internal use. Uh, goal two uh, is for yeah for users to contribute to the 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 eventual level piece pool that the game has. So. One of our one of our goals internally, uh, just without having released the editor, uh, it's important to us to make sure that we have built enough chunks for the game that even if no users ever make any, uh, that anybody buying the game still has a good experience, still has sufficient variability. So we're we're basically doing the amount of level design work that we would do, even if we had never planned on releasing the editor, because. While we certainly hope that the community builds lots of fantastic chunks and does all this cool stuff, uh, you know we can't we can't rely on that. We can't assume that's going to happen. You know this is the first time we've released uh, editing tools like this. We've you know dealt with having a chunk server like this. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns there for us, and you know we don't know for sure that people will you know turn out and make great content. We can't rely on that. We can't we can't ask somebody to buy our game, hinging on the idea that the community will help us build some of the chunks. So we really, we have to sort of do our homework on that. And, you know, we have to produce enough interesting level design content uh, that somebody buying the game who never gets any additional chunks or, you know, if nobody ever makes any, uh, is still happy with their purchase. Uh, but uh, we certainly hope that the, the community will make lots of interesting stuff. You know, one of the one of the greatest things about sort of the, the set of building blocks of 30XX's stages is that almost every individual mechanic is a, a relatively sort of simple piece of kit by itself. But every level has enough of these sort of individual simple pieces that they, yeah, they can be combined in all sorts of really fantastic ways. And we're not going to know exactly what the full scope of all of those fantastic ways is until we see uh, you know, myriad different people sort of experimenting with them and saying, here's the cool stuff that I made with the building blocks you gave me.
Um, we've already been pretty pretty surprised seeing some of the stuff that's come up on the editor so far, just in the last couple of days. Uh, so so that's sort of number two. We hope that people will give us more uh, sort of content over time that we can then turn on to the rest of the fan base and say like, look, look at the fantastic stuff uh, that other fans have made here. Uh, you know, we think this meets sort of the quality bar of the base game itself. And so now we're going to wind it in. Uh, and the third part is sort of as a as a separate way to to engage with the game and get into and stay into 30XX. We expect there will be, you know, some chunk of the population that, you know, really enjoys the game. But the thing that really keeps them engaged is is the editor. They really enjoy the creation. They really enjoy seeing the way people react to their, the, the levels that they make. Uh, and so we sort of see it as... You know, the sort of the definitely the core thrusts are our internal use, and then hopefully uh, getting able to or being able to add to our, our piece pool over time. Uh, but we certainly hope that people sort of uh, have fun with the editor for the editor's sake and just really enjoy sort of making and playing through their own pieces. Chris is quick to emphasize in that interview that there is no one size fits all set of design best practices for all games across genres. Sticking with that theme, let's hear from Anissa Sanusi, who you might know from the Limit Break Mentorship Program, and who is here talking about her UI UX work on two very different games for which she did that work, Planet Coaster and Elite Dangerous. It's a lot of like, again, just listening to what do because players have so much more like specific feedback that they would tell us and you know we've got people who scan the forums like daily and just check up on what people talk about like what the problems are and usually um i know gamers think that you know you're going to complain about something we see it we can just quickly air quotes here quickly put something in for them um but we have there's a process right like we need to put it through production we need to get an okay from management and then and then it trickles down to us actually implementing a change or a, a bug fix or anything like that wait a minute um, wait a minute I, I thought it was just about devs caring rather than being lazy i i didn't realize that. <laughs> sorry it's stupid i know joke. right <laughs> um yeah so like with but then with planet coaster it's kind of different because Planet Coaster um, is new, right? So we do have um, a, Frontier has a history of releasing like roller coaster theme park games prior to Planet Coaster. So we we made Roller Coaster Tycoon three, the three D one, um, mm. and we've released like a mobile version of that. And we've also released a, a few other smaller roller coaster games um but planet coaster was going to be like the game that is going to revive the theme park genre and i'm i'm going to say it did because um we were uh what do you call it we we were on alpha we had, we had pre-alpha players um and their their feedback was great but i also realized like the type of players are extremely different in a sense that like people who play elite they're there for like 100% complete escapism. Like they have very high expectations mm. of like what a spaceship is supposed to feel immersion, like. Immersion, you know, credibility, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah, complete and utter immersion. Um, whereas with Planet Coaster, they're kind of like builders slash designer types. Again, people who play The Sims who would spend ages on building a house for, or spend ages just building their sims before even playing the game right so similarly with planet coaster we have architects people who are like so specific we're like oh i need this piece to work this way or you know like the system what we built for planet coaster feels so much more like building a 3d program so the thought process is completely different we're just like how can we make this as user-friendly as possible because people are creating like 
literal Disney World replicas, or or even back before, like when our our pieces were still limited, people were using it in such creative ways to make like an Asian inspired, you know, theme park. When we didn't have specific pieces for that, but they kind of, you know, they change. Um, they just use existing pieces, change the color a bit, you know, change how it's positioned, and voila, there's like an amazing temple here. And I was like, what? You know, so the, the different audience you're trying to cater to is completely different. Whereas Elite Dangerous, they're just like, we don't care if it's difficult to use. We want to make sure that you can do da 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 da. You know, it's like, okay, okay, let's try doing this. <laughs> When we talk about making the experience of playing games more possible and more pleasant to lots of different folks, we inevitably have to talk about accessibility in the proper sense of the word. So let's hear from Chevy Ray, who came on to talk about their wonderful RPG, Eichenfell, and specifically in this section is talking about adding accessibility options to that game and the sort of hidden benefits of doing so. Because I was just like, this stuff's just, it's just there, but it doesn't have to be. I like it there, but if I can make, it's, it was so easy for me to add in options to disable those things. Like it was so easy and it it made the world of difference to everyone. So uh, a couple big ones are like stuff like screen shake. It, there's one screen shake function. All I had to do was wrap it in a Boolean. There, no more screen shake if you disable it. And now people with motion sickness can play the game. And that's a lot of people. <laughs> so why do I don't want motion, sick, motion sick, you know, sensitive people to feel crappy playing my game. Like, so there we go. Now they don't have to. Like, that's so cool. That was so easy. <laughs> Um, and I realized, and then the other thing you learn very quickly is that there's always a secret benefit and you're never ready for them. Um, and the example they gave during the Microsoft talk was, uh, sidewalks, how they, they, they have ramps at the corners of sidewalks to get down onto the, uh, road. So you don't have to step up. And that was initially added for, uh, specifically, I believe veterans in wheelchairs, because there was this, there was a lot of this encouraging to, you know be there for veterans and respect veterans after uh, World War II, I believe. And so that's when I believe that in the United States specifically that came in. And you see this everywhere now. But as soon as you add ramps to the ends of sidewalks, suddenly now I'm like, oh, uh, my baby carriage goes up this easier. Oh, people who are in crutches can get up the sidewalks easier. Oh, now I'm moving in and I've got all these boxes on a dolly. Now I can get the dolly up. Like, it's just better for everybody that ever, everywhere has wheelchair ramps now. Like, it's so good. Like, and it benefited like dozens and dozens of other kind of like categories of people. So you're like, well, we added it for one thing, but it turns out it was good for a lot of other reasons. And this happened multiple times in I can fill. <laughs> it was very good. Like, for example, um, disabling the difficulty stuff makes it good for people who uh, uh, the game is too hard for, or the game the people who aren't interested in those mechanics. But also, our musician Ivy, they actually got chronic. They got injured really, really badly. Their hands hurt terribly during crunch, during when we were finalizing I Can Fail, uh. and they weren't able to play through the game and test all the music. So that's when we added the victory option, actually. <laughs> And then, oh, wow. and they could just skip the battles and play through the game. And I was like, this is great. What if someone, like, lots of people have chronic hand pain. Lots of people, like, why can't, why don't, I want this to be an option for everybody. So they suggested the victory option. It just has, like, a debug thing. And I was like, I'll just put it in the menu. And so I just made an option for it in the menu. I was like, this will take me, and it took me probably 20 minutes. <laughs> and so... Uh, I think I just keep being surprised at how easy most accessibility options are to put in a game. Like most of them are so simple, uh, so I don't really think there's an excuse not to put them in for most games. 
Was is it fair to say that some of that was easier for you because this is an engine you built? And I'm not making excuses for folks who work in, you know, Unity or Unreal, but but you know, if those features don't exist, people may not know how to implement them. You had a pretty high degree of control. Is is that is that right? It did help a lot, yeah. Um on one of my other podcasts I mentioned that like some of these things are very easy to do. Some of these things are harder to do. Uh but you should always whenever there's a thing that happens a lot in a game usually it's best to design it so that there's always there's always one place that triggers that. For example, the screen shake function I mentioned. Mm-hmm. If your game, every single time there's a screen shake, manually implements it, it uh, you probably shouldn't be doing that in the first place. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, if, yeah. If, if you hadn't done that in the first place, if you you know have routed it all through one place, then it's very easy to do that. So if, if you're like a novice developer, you know, and you're making a game jam game, maybe you'll just kind of hack it in and it, it's harder to add that option in. But also it's like most people who are working on long-term big projects with, with an intended quite large audience, uh, they are card coded more carefully, even in Unity or other game engines. But yeah, it does play a role. And it was very easy for me because I could just get my fingers in whatever part of the game engine I wanted very easily. Next, let's hear from Russell Quinn, who is making the transition from difficult-to-describe multimedia projects like the Silent History and the Pickle Index to a game, Linda and Joan. Although, in addition to being a game, Linda and Joan is also a multimedia art project. Here, he talks about the different mechanics in the Linda and Joan prologue, which is out now, and the full game that he's currently working on, and how those mechanics are meant to reflect relationship dynamics. Yeah, like in the prologue, um, as you said, and like you play, and like you're walking these two characters up uh, this hiking trail, um, and the Russell character, who is younger and more uh, healthy, has a faster walking speed uh, than Linda, who is walking with a stick. She has like slight knee pain, and so she's walking with a stick. Um, so it's kind of playing on, like, on this friction of, um, like, it's frustrating to have to slow down, and it's frustrating to have to keep up. So you have to balance these two walking speeds. And in the default mode, and, like you just control the walking speed of Russell, and then Linda follows. But you kind of have to match her speed. And she will get um, like, slower and slower as she walks up the hill, because... Uh, because as in real life, uh, I mean, the further you walk, the slower uh, you get. I and mean, there are things, there's like a bench halfway up where you can stop and sit. I mean, sit down, the like, reboosts. Um, yeah, the character's energy levels. There are like certain things in the conversation uh, that can make I mean, the characters feel um, like, happier or sadder. And that like morale boost can make, I can give them um, like a physical boost. Um, and so you're always like you have to walk and talk at the same time. So you're kind of like you're like advancing the conversation between the two characters, and then every now and again you have to um, like reset the walking speed um, and try and keep them so they are walking within earshot. Um, and if they start walking too far apart, then the speech in the text I and mean, the text bubbles on screen um, it kind of uh, gets all like blurry um, or jittery, um, and you can't really hear uh, what they are saying. Um, like you can just, I mean, if you just want to finish uh, the game, then you can just. I uh, think Russell can like march up the hill, 
um, by himself and Linda can Ala can walk by herself. Um, I mean, that's, that's like a perfectly valid way to play it. Um, uh, like how that makes you feel is almost like a thing to explore maybe. Um, like in that case, you won't have a conversation because they, uh, they cannot hear each other. Um, so yeah, so that friction of like, um, of like parent-child um, having different physical needs among this walk and they're having to find uh, this common ground in walking speed as well as common ground in the conversation was, yeah, was like the whole, uh, like the whole point of the game mechanic in the prologue. The, um, I mean, the main Linda and Joan game is, is much more of um, a narrative adventure game where uh, you actually control um, all three characters. So, uh, you control Russell, the son, Linda, the mother, and then Joan, uh, the grandmother. And you can switch back and forth in between them. Um, and it's more of a point and click experience when I like you're walking around this, you're like, uh, these, these are like, these small houses in England and interacting uh, with things. And this time as the player, you, um, playing the role of the family unit. That notion of playing as a family unit really kind of gets me. Uh, if that intrigues you, then do check out that episode. Shifting gears, though. That great song you heard a bit of as I was introducing Russell is by Jeremy Wormsley, who came on the show in the very next episode to talk a bit about his work on Linda and Joan, and also his other work, including but not limited to his work on the Minsk Works games, Jalopy and Landlord Super, which you're hearing a bit of right now. The rest, Jeremy will definitely say better than I could. So here's, uh, here's the clip. It's amazing seeing the way that people connect to music in a game in a way that they connect, people connect to, I, I've played in bands, I've, I've released, you know, I think six albums now, uh, seven albums in different, uh, as just as a, as a musical artist to different varying degrees of success, but uh, reaching sometimes quite big audiences, but still the way that people connect to that music is so different to the way that they connect to music in a game. I think if you're playing a game, you might, you might put 10, 11, you know, you might put a hundred hours into a game. There are people who have put a hundred hours into Jalopy easily, and they're just sitting there playing the game with the music going round and round and round. And that you form a connection to that in a way that I don't know many people who listen to an album hundred times. Like there are albums that I've listened to a hundred times, maybe, sure. maybe five or six albums I've listened to a hundred times. And it is really a privilege to see people connecting to, to understand the connection that they have almost, but almost not by their own choice. You know, that is more like they've been, it's more like I've snuck into their brains, whether they like it or not. And that's, yeah, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it as well. But you're right. The fact that like, especially in Jalopy, the fact that people have to like suffer to listen to the music, I think that's, that's phenomenal. You know, you know, they're going to appreciate, they're appreciating it if they're making the choice to listen to it. I was, I was yeah, actually checking out some of the reviews of the soundtrackers user reviews. And I promise I'm not about to pummel you with your own bad reviews. Quite the opposite. There were so many people <laughs> who said like, at first the soundtrack wasn't my thing, but then I started hoping my uncle would shut up so I could listen to it. You know, like I'd like people oh, whose relationship nice. with it changed over the course of their play. And that's, yeah, I mean, again, you know, in general, I think if you're subjected to something for a long time, it's hard not to at least get used to it. <laughs> I remember um, I made a record once and uh, this guy, this guy mixed it. He was a lovely guy. Uh, he'd worked with like George Michael and uh, Coldplay and 
lots of really big bands. And I remember saying to him, um, if you ever mixed something that that you just didn't like, so I don't know if people know, but like mixing an album is a process that can take weeks or months. So you, you listen to these songs again and again and again. And if you didn't like the music, it would be it would be hellish. And he said to me, to be honest, by the time you've listened to something 10 times, you're you're always going to like it, mm. no matter what. So maybe um, maybe there's a little Stockholm syndrome going on with some of these uh, some of these people who say that they're uh, they're enjoying the music. I mean, I hope not. I hope they're. Uh, I, I guess um, I guess what I'm saying is that it's maybe it's not just that they warmed up to it over time, but that it changed them to an extent. The experience of having to listen to it for so long. Art should change us, right? We should want art to change us. That requires a certain openness that can be hard to practice, though. And also, it should be said, it's fair to not be completely open all the time, to know what you want from a piece of art sometimes. And that's where genre can come in. So how better to talk about genre than to talk about one of the most debated, policed, <laughs> gate-kept, but also permeable, ultimately, genres around the roguelike. Here I'm talking to Santiago Zapata, uh, who came on the show to talk about his new game, uh, Nova Mundi Spear of the Shoken, which is roguelike adjacent, uh, and also his expertise in the area of roguelikes and the, the, you know, the traditional roguelikes, as he calls them, and how having a very strict definition of what a traditional roguelike is or should or could be is just fine but that that should be a question of curation, of helping people find things they want or are interested in, not a question of community gatekeeping. Yeah, yeah, I completely disagree with a lot of the gatekeeping happening. And actually, as you pointed out, yeah, I have this website called Temple of the Roguelike, and it's been running for a long time. And uh, some people there are, are very, uh, like, uh, purists. I don't know how to pronounce this, right? Like, uh, purists, yeah, yeah, totally. Purists, yeah. yeah. So... Some time ago, uh, I decided to address this and kind of went head on with this in the forums and say that we do welcome the discussion of non-super traditional roguelikes, right? I hate the term roguelite because to me it implies like this is a lesser kind of game and that's not true. I mean, these some of these games that are classified as roguelites are very uh, uh, big uh, games, just, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, what, it's what precisely is like light that. about Spelunky, right? Yeah. Very little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think uh, I put the, I, I made a clear clear point that we did welcome the discussion of this. Some people there didn't like it because they believed like this was like the, the last bastion of traditional roguelikes and while <laughs> the entire world was falling and like, uh, accepting the, the, the roguelike world to be used for something else, this place wasn't. But but yeah, I pointed out that was not the case. And what I believe is that the right way to tackle this is not to gatekeep, but to let people in and then explain about the traditional roguelikes. Uh, that's the way I refer to them, which are turn-based, which are grid-based and... Yeah, that's sort of the thing. For example, to me, the main the main distinction between what people nowadays, the mainstream associates with roguelikes is the real-time nature. But uh, I found it surprisingly that for other people, it's the meta progression. And mm, yeah, so yeah. It, it's like a completely different uh, criteria, um, which shows a lot that this definition of roguelikeness is completely subjective. Yeah, so for anybody who's not familiar with this debate, Spelunky 
basically doesn't have meta progression. There, there's a there's a sort of there are a few exceptions like the shortcuts and stuff. But basically, mm-hmm. every run you start fresh. You could you could win the first time. You're not any more powerful the hundredth time you play. As distinct from something like Hades, to cite a recent very popular example, where you do get currency, you keep across runs, you spend it, you get more powerful in a permanent way. And you're saying for some of the the purists or just people who like traditional roguelikes, that Mm -hmm. meta progression sort of breaks the spell. They want to start fresh every time. That's right. That's right. But yeah, I I, I think we we need to not keep scaring people away. It is a bit sad uh, that I, I think I, I I did not address this on time. So the hmm. Temple of the Roguelike forums kind of died because some people were very vocal and kind of scared people away from, from, mm. from the side. Like, uh, sure. like uh, hey, guys, someone came in and said, hey, uh, I, I would like to, to play some roguelikes like Spelunky. And then someone would say, that's not a roguelike. How dare you get away from here? Uh, you you guys are, are ruining ruining our genre and yeah I did not address that in time but uh, well better late better late than never I guess yeah 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 once yeah. well, so I mean uh... next up we have Yadu Rajiv who was on to talk about the Indian indie game scene particularly his work on GameDev.in. Here we talk about how getting your bearings as far as a given country's games market, mobile versus PC versus console, requires understanding how people have historically played games in that country. So people were, um, to begin with, people were always on PCs to begin with, mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And the shift was from PC to uh, PC to mobile. The shift has been PC to mobile and all new people who are coming into uh, playing games are mobile first so like for for mm. a large swath of the generation who grew up um uh in the 90s uh, i would say they started off on pc and gaming on the pc uh and maybe uh, a knockoff nintendo uh, uh uh a 16-bit console or something where you would have played something like a super mario or a contra or something that's um, wild too, right? Those cartridge with the eight and sixteen bit stuff had a much yeah. longer life in yeah. uh, in in South Asia, right? Because because of those knockoffs and and, and yeah. all, yeah, yeah. So I had a Russian knockoff called Dendi. <laughs> oh, I've heard about the Dendi. I've never gotten to play with one though. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm assuming it's it's basically the same thing as like like the uh, the and and the the thirty the eight bit uh, the sixteen bit oh, the eight bit mm-hmm. the eight bit cartridges, yeah. But uh, so, so I mean, for those of us who had some sort of consoles, I think those were the, the knockoff consoles and maybe some weird, I'm not sure from where, but handheld devices that we got. But mostly it was those console games. And then I think a bunch of PC games, I think, um, uh, which, which basically set the stage for games and people who played games. And then, uh, and then like, the, the mobile revolution sort of kicked off and people started focusing on mobiles more. And our console markets have always, uh, the console, the, I mean, we were never a console market actually to begin with. And we and India's largely been ignored by almost all the big people. I mean, Sony and PlayStation mostly, uh, Sony and uh, Microsoft. Uh, and it's it has, Microsoft has probably been the only person who has been kind of trying to make some headway into the into this space. Otherwise, you it was even like, it was not necessarily a market for them. They, 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 it didn't really affect their bottom lines, whether they kind of uh, sold in India or not. So that's, that's wild to me because there are, there are some people in India. <laughs> that's true. But it's just, uh, it's a, yeah, but it's a, 
it's also uh, a luxury right like having uh, mm. like if you if you like your phones are much cheaper you can you can uh, get a phone for a fraction of the cost for, uh, as a console these days uh, so uh, and and uh, they i mean a console is, requires a tv to play with and you know it it comes with a lot of additional things like costlier games so of course modding was a huge thing also uh, so like i mean and 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 games piracy was a thing at some point uh, when nobody could afford games at that point like we, sure. we never i mean yeah so i guess wait, wait, I, you're <laughs> wait hold on you're telling me that when the companies neglect a market the market is just going to make do on its own and figure out a way to play the games anyway that's so crazy that's yeah, <laughs> who I mean, would have thought <laughs> <laughs> like yeah like that is that is well but true i suppose <laughs> that, no i mean i i'm i'm being i'm you know i'm, I'm being sarcastic cuz because of course that's what would happen right people people yeah, yeah. want to play games and you know yeah, the, and the way to stop piracy is to provide a legitimate option right that's right, right. that, that yeah, is easier uh, that is and true. yeah and and once like even you know after, like it, the point is that you will also need uh like at, at some point people like you start I mean, these people who would pirate games would eventually kind of find a job and you know earn money and eventually kind of pay for these things. But like you, you even if it's like it's like you still need to have access to the things. So otherwise, where else are you going to kind of go? I have gone ahead and uh, switched to a maple rye old fashioned over here. Uh, good rye whiskey, maple syrup as the sweetener, and uh, orange bitters. Good stuff. Recommended. Anyway, let's run with the theme of the market, mismatching or missing entirely what people want or need. To do that, let's talk to Zalave Nelson Jr. about the politics of his game, An Airport for Aliens, currently run by dogs. Uh, I joke sometimes that um, you can see my radicalization for the game in real time. <laughs> like they airport can... to airport, you mean, or like just over the life of the development? Oh, just over the, the the life of the development, when you play the game, it is uh, pretty fundamental how, yeah, it's pretty fundamental to the degree <laughs> to which uh, the, my perspective has radically changed. Um, I, I'd say I've, I've always had a pretty empathetic and human-centered perspective. But like the active questioning of the idea that the world is the way that it is and that is best really comes through here. Uh, you see me writing this dog that is a doctor and being like, you know, yeah, when you say like, hey, well, what do I owe you? He's like, I'm not going to charge you for getting better. I'm a doctor, not a monster. And it's like, <laughs> right. yeah, it's really messed up to have the burden for continuing someone's temporal life on this plane. The most precious thing we have is human life. It's so limited. It takes 18 years to grow a new adult and that we would, for profit's sake, Abandon that is fundamentally not just distressing, but uh, wrong. And this game is <laughs> the chronicle of me looking at all of these assumptions for the world as I thought it had to work 
because so few sources in our media and reality are pushing against it. Yeah, this game is the chronicle of me saying, no. If only in this tiny pocket of absurdist reality, it can and it should be better. So if there is so wide a gap between the way things could be and indeed need to be on the one hand and the way they are on the other, how can that not feel like an urgent problem to us all of the time? Well, that question forms one of the main themes of Umarangi Generation. So here's Naptale Faulkner talking a bit about how by hiding relatively unsubtle tells about the twists that are coming later in the game, earlier in the game, he manages to craft a metaphor for that very cognitive process of ignoring big problems. No specific spoilers here, just some talk about narrative sleight of hand and the political thought behind putting that there. And, you know, there's been like a lot of players I watched on streams and they just walked right past it, had a little bit of a look in there, turned around, kept, kept going. And, you know, it's this whole thing where um, having that stuff so, you know, prominent in the level, but people not being able to see it, I think is just this really interesting uh, thing. And, and, you know, basically that was the whole point of the, you know, sort of neoliberalism in it, which is the, um, you know, making people able to ignore something that is like so painfully obvious in front of them um, and, and is a problem. Yeah. So like, you know, the idea of it being that um, it's based on things like climate change or, um COVID is this whole thing where like, you know, with, um, you know, like bushfires in Australia or Brazil or whatever. Um, and that's what actually inspired this, right? You started on this before yeah. COVID. I mean, climate change obviously is, is, is in some ways the common thread and certainly. Yeah. Well, I would say the common this, thread but... is that the, the, the common thread between them is how these neoliberal systems respond to these problems. For right? sure. They, they create these problems and they're not equipped to deal with them right so yeah yeah they'll, they'll sort of like uh you know like the, the big thing i remember around these you know 2019 fires was like scientists saying the time to act on this was 20 years ago and we told you 20 years ago right and nothing had like nothing got changed right and, and you know for me it's that whole thing where like yeah i was alive in 2000 as a kid and remember seeing stuff about like um you, you know climate change on tv like like either documentaries or you know, um, even if it was just like, you know, uh, you sort of like three minute thing where they're telling you to like, you know, like on like a kid's TV show where they're telling you to like recycle bottles because, you know, this is the, this is the reason why and, and all this stuff. And basically, um, you know, it's just this whole thing, the stalling process over the last 20 years has achieved nothing in terms of like concrete um, action towards this stuff. Uh, you know, the, the idea with the game was to sort of like say, um, this is the logical extent of where this is all going, right? And the idea is to position it as a young person in the game where, you know, you're a young person in the game with, you know, other young people and you're the Umurangi generation. You're the last generation who has to go through this, um, you know, state of having to watch the world die in front of you without being able to do anything about it. Um, you know, it's this idea that, like, when you are in that, you know, like, like I would say with millennials, we're sort of still in that place, but probably not as much as like, you know, Gen Z who are, you, you know, like no one in the sort of Gen Z space or whatever is, is, uh, you know, like, like most of them are probably either still in university or, 
um, you know, working jobs or something like that that are, or, or, you know, like still in school. Like I know with us, it's like we're starting to maybe get into positions where we can maybe do something. But there's that other thing where now you've got certain millennials who are um, basically ready to join the rest of the other older generations and just being completely fucking incompetent, right? Where they're, 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 they're willing to now sit in those seats and continue the same cycle of events so that nothing gets changed. Umurangi Generation is not, in my estimation, an entirely hopeless endeavor. But it is very much a game that is more about the problems than the solutions. That's really important, to stare that stuff in the face. By way of contrast, though, let's take a look at a game that is about radical hope. About, upon staring that stuff in the face, insisting that together we can definitely overcome it. That game would be Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart. Here's lead writer Lauren Mee talking about the highly collaborative process of building the game that the, that the Insomniac team underwent, how that process sort of mirrors the themes of the game itself, and how it differs a bit from other still quite collaborative, in many ways still quite positive, but definitely different processes that she's gone through at, for example, Telltale Games. There were uh, directors and leads from all sorts of departments. Uh, almost, I think almost every department um, came into our, back when we could be in person, would come into the room and we would all talk together about, okay, here's our, here's our macro, here's our characters, here's how we're expecting things to play out. And then working together to try and create, um, a story and a game that is, you know, make sure it's all connected and that we're not creating these disparate pieces that we then have to mush together. Um, so Insomniac really cares about that a lot. It's like the Good, good ideas come from everywhere and we we should listen to each other and work together and it's almost like a joke that like the better together thing is like the story of our production <laughs> as, <laughs> as well as the story of the game you weren't just you weren't just uh, putting it out in the world you were living it yeah it, very much so um and so it it's it might not necessarily like so so it doesn't like begin with story it kind of begins with you know just the game it begins with the totally, idea. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. The writer is not leading it because no one department is. It's like totally. fully collaborative from the jump. Yeah. Whereas like Telltale was very much story first. Um, yeah. it that, was, which makes sense. You know, I mean, there that's that was, that was what the, the studio was known for. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the sometimes for better or for worse. Um, because you know that. Well, it's dead. I could say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> no, and again, I don't want to make you. I don't want to make you say anything you're uncomfortable with. But I, I guess oh, no. let me let me tee it up as a player. It was baffling to me that they didn't invest in new tools because, like, The Walking Dead sure. season one, which is a masterpiece, already looked a little clunky from an animation perspective yes. when it came out. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I mean, like, by the time, um, by the by the time we got to the final season of The Walking Dead, the the improvements from a pure like tech and animation perspective were were way more marginal than one might have expected based on the mm -hmm. level of success Telltale achieved. There wasn't necessarily investment in the rest of the production. I, I don't know if that was what you were going to say or if it's if it looked different from the inside. Yeah, well, the funny thing about Telltale was like everyone who worked there was so talented and cared so much. Um, but it was just like yeah, I'm totally not not ripping on the animators. I think it had more oh, to do with 100%. the tools and stuff. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. I no, I didn't take it that way at all. Um, I, I just wanted to reiterate. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. No, it's important to reiterate. Yeah, yeah. That's part um, of why it was such a such a sad thing when it, when it uh, got you know mishandled and closed down. Yeah, rip. That's <laughs> in chat completely. Yeah. chat. <laughs> it's true. Oh my god. Oh, see that that'd be like a whole other 
like a very fun fact on the side or no very fast fun fact on what's a very fun <laughs> fact i'll leave that up to you to decide um that's right, but- <laughs> marginally fun fact uh so mary who i said worked on uh, rift apart um so she and i both worked on or to telltale together and mm. we um were both interns at the same time and then we're together on projects until the company closed and, and that just made me think of it like the Epson chat because that was like <laughs> i remember when the when we got the uh, calendar invite for the um we have a company meeting in 20 minutes mm-hmm. and, and our boss uh our lead designer stood up and looked at us and said uh uh, you guys are want to. You guys are gonna want to grab a box. Oh my god! And we were. We both. We both aren't smokers, but she happened to have cigarettes on her desk, and we like walked outside. <laughs> Had an Epson chat moment where we both smoked a cigarette. We're like, what are we gonna do? Or like, is this company really about to close? <laughs> yeah, no, that that mo- that weird moment where it's not quite real yet. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that is a total Epson chat moment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But it's it's so funny now looking back on it, especially because it is very cathartic that like she and I still get to work together on things. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's super cool and uh, probably one of the world's largest coincidences. The Mary that Lauren was talking about there is Mary Kenny, by the way, if you want to look up her work. Okay, let's stick with process discussions, but let's go back to the world of indie games. Specifically, let's talk to most of the D-Cells team about Unbeatable, and more specifically about White Label, the prologue slash demo slash OVA, if we're thinking of this as an anime, that they released for free. That means a low barrier of entry, which means people playing, which means feedback, early and often. So, specifically here we're talking about the idea which I sort of ascribe to Zach Barth, because he said it on this show a few times, Zach Barth of Zachtronics, that players are really good at knowing when there's a problem, but not especially good at suggesting the right solution. Like, that's definitely a thing that we believe to at the team, essentially, when it comes to handling stuff like this. Right. People will tell you, like, this is not working. Here's how you can fix it. And they they will be very right about half yeah. of that. And it's not it's not so, blaming people necessarily. Um, it's just like it's really difficult to have yeah, an exact it, perspective on how to make something really work when you're not the one actually behind it. Um yeah, but you know, yeah, it's still it's still it's like when you're not like it's still awesome to get that. When you're not like back. knees deep Yeah, when you're not like knees deep into the Unity editor like going in and making levels and programming the things, it's like and you don't have like a you know, like a, a an overhead view of how it all gels together. It's hard to come up with solutions to yeah. um, like the kinds of problems that you can't possibly have a view of unintended consequences though, right? that like like criticism of the game is almost always you know legitimate criticism right and you need to figure out a way to address that um even if even if ultimately like the the, the ultimatum is like we cannot address this like I, I feel like it's important to at least put the effort into to think about it and just figure out what what the best plan of action is, because you know if one person has an issue, that that probably means a lot of people have the same. Quite issue, rare for so. an issue to be unique to one person. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it it does sometimes happen. It does sometimes happen, and sometimes you get a fun bug mm-hmm. that only appears uh, if you run AMD Ryzen processors. Um. <laughs> this this sounds like a totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, to be fair, that wasn't that wasn't that's like that's a that specific at all. <laughs> so it's it wasn't a big deal because it was just a visual quirk. But like, basically, it turns out 
I don't know if it's because AMD processors are too accurate or not accurate enough. Uh, one of those things is true. Helpful. This is like French baking. You um, either you either stirred it too much or not enough, and it's too much sugar. Yeah, or right. too <laughs> But there was like, yeah, a, there was like a floating a floater, point number and it would just or... drift over time um, because the, the floating point oh, number no. would like oh, no. itself and over time it would just get slowly less accurate. And on Intel systems, this never happened. It was only AMD systems. Still don't know. Yeah, it's a lot of can, vision. Yeah. I, can, I can say this much. I believe because I did footage for some stuff in the, the League of Two set we did, that bug is actually pretty visually prevalent. Yeah, you, you can, can see that bug in the vein. It, the sad thing is, it, it took me about uh, like 35 minutes to fix once I had figured out what the thing was that was causing the issue. But um, in order to do that, uh, we we had to go out and <laughs> buy some equipment. Oh no! You had to like get a, a, a Ryzen processor. Yeah, it was like a it was like a uh, which right, is which exactly. is a super easy thing to do right now, by the way. Yeah, really easy. Oh, super! Yeah, really yeah. easy. Definitely very cheap. Yeah. Taking a step back again from the nuts and bolts of day-to-day -day operations at an indie studio and talking a little more about the philosophy of indie games. Let's hear from Charles Bourdain, who talks a bit about the experimental spirit of music, which is maybe less prominent in Top 40 than it has been in previous decades, and how, in his view, that experimental spirit is a bit more alive and well in the space of games. People should always experiment more and more and more to make progress. I mean, it doesn't mean making inaudible music or things horrible. It doesn't mean... I mean, you mean can do that too, but that's, like you don't that. have to do that. <laughs> yeah. But you, 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 it's just not always making the same kind of things with four bits and boots, boots. And, and it's always, you, you, you know, the same chords with the same kind of voices and all the, and all those things. I, I know it always existed, but it's so satisfying when you're, when you're a musician to try to make something more different yeah. more personal even if it doesn't touch so that many people but yeah yeah yeah. for it to really be for someone it's always going to be yeah. for a smaller group of people but it, you know when something tries to be for everyone it ends up not meaning much to any of them and yeah. it's like there are artists who sneak through that give me hope lil nas x is pretty weird and extremely popular for example mm -hmm. um very you know like clearly has his interests and, and pursues them but i think you're right that like even it isn't as that, like you said, people never stopped making inventive music. Maybe the industry yeah. just got better at the formula of of telling people what they wanted and then saying, "Well, we're just giving you what you want," right? Like <laughs> the sort of yeah, yeah the flattening <laughs> of of what what a pop song is supposed and, to be. Yeah, and it's not only in music; we see it everywhere. You know, we 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 oh, sure. we, we begin to see it in the the video game industry too. So yeah, yeah, it's like the big the big companies saying, oh, we perfectly know what you want. Here's what you want. Because <laughs> they have to tell their shareholders they're going to grow forever exponentially, <laughs> even though nothing yeah. can do that. Yeah. But what's fun with the video gaming industry, it it's not that predictable. You know, nobody predicted that games like Among Us, Minecraft, or games like that will blow everything up. no no you know? nobody would have nobody yeah there's there's not a single 
industry executive like like microsoft bought mojang right and and owns minecraft Mm -hmm. but like i i do not think a single person at microsoft could claim to have seen minecraft coming before the fact right yeah and that's what is still cool with this industry it's still young and we can we can still experiment a lot and and make fresh and new things that people that I, I I mean when I create a game I I don't want to to make a game that okay people will know what they play and you know I want to make a game that will surprise people in some way I have definitely already been surprised by a musical story one of the games that Charles is currently working on uh, Overloop looks potentially quite surprising as well he is definitely an artist to keep an eye on Okay, let's bring together these two sort of philosophical and operational strains by talking to Don Bellinger about how his current project, The Beauty Cult, began with repurposing the engine from his previous quite solo project, Black Future 88. The game actually started out with quite a different concept before really honing in on this idea of the utopian society and the gardening aspect. Um, And it, it really, it actually actually, it started with the Black Future codebase but I stripped out all the game content and really grew up all the systems to fix some of the, like the development pain points. Like this game takes too long to compile and that slows me down. Um, so stuff like that. Um, and you knew enough to eliminate that like technical debt while still yeah. keeping the code base. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so that that's actually, that, that took a while to kind of grow up all that code. Cause that game, Black Future was developed in haste. Oh my God. <laughs> that <laughs> was just the most manic development experience of my life. And that lasted for a long time. Um, I was going to say, it wasn't a short development process, right? So no. like, that's, that's a long time to have been manic. Yeah. Well, it was just me is the problem. So <laughs> uh, yeah, just doing, doing the music and, um, you know, we, we did an early access program um, that I think worked I, I guess it was success successful in one way um but really this was a time when we should have been listening to players and uh fixing bugs and doing last mile of content and like trying different kinds of designs um but you know when you're one developer you're completely single threaded and you're only going to be doing one of those things at a time and for me it was fixing bugs um so a lot of the early access in black future wasn't really spent on things that it should have been spent on, which is, you know, listening to player feedback, working it in, um, building the community up. Um, that's just stuff that never really got to work because it was always a hasty development. It was always a scramble to, you know, get it ready for a show or get it ready for a publisher or get it ready for some other platform. It's a lot. <laughs> that's weirdly appropriate. I mean, we've not said black, you know, what are the big you know differences between black future 88 and other otherwise similar roguelikes or roguelike alikes is that you've got a very finite amount of time to live. You're constantly scrambling and time is something you can bargain with or whatever, but it's, you're never not thinking about it. So the idea of it being a scramble of a development throughout the process, again, weirdly appropriate, but I can only imagine how hectic. And and we should say you nonetheless, despite this focus on bugs you're talking about, you did, you know, put substantive content into the game in the period we're talking about. Yeah. Um, And that, that was exhausting. Um, Meanwhile, like, being in a band and like trying to get these songs ready to like play live, like holy shit, this never stops. Um, it's a lot. You know, I I loved it, but at the 
you know, when it was kind of all said and done, I'm like, oh my God, that's not how you make a game. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to do it alone. That That is true of the project you're working on. But it's also true in a broader and more, you know, philosophical sense. That realization is the beginning of community and mutual support. So on that note, let's talk to Laya B. She does talk a fair bit in her episode about working with her studio, Pincer Games, and with the broader Uruguayan indie scene. But here, she's talking about her stewardship of the One Reason to Be panel, about trying to do the previous organizers of that GDC panel justice by taking geographical, gender, ethnic, all those different kinds of diversity into account when she brings people together to talk about why they make games. I try to select people from countries that are actually going through some difficulties. Like, for yeah. example, Sandra's from Colombia. They, now, some months ago, like, the police force literally murdering their own people in the streets if you can see you you can see uh, all over twitter what was going on it was awful so i uh, i already knew sandra so sandra um did a fantastic job also uh, camila from chile that uh, chile um after all the the mobilizations and the on the strike uh, they actually uh, transform the constitution and that was awesome that something that chile did so I thought that it was really interesting to have something from Chile too. Um, who else? We have um, okay. So Wem Wem is is uh, a Palestinian girl that is now um, uh, uh, studying in Tokyo, uh, architectures of video games or something like that. Is something something really cool that she's studying. Uh, so yeah, it was really important for like for me it was okay. We have to try to to find a Palestinian uh, game developer to to be able to be part of the panel because um, what was going on and 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 a media like shutting down all all these voices. So I thought that it was opportunity to 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 make them heard. No, that's incredible. That's incredible. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I, uh a people that is like literally erased in the mainstream media in the U S sometimes like, like that they don't even have the right to be thought of as a discrete people. Right. So to, to put that experience front and center and to put it in the context of all these others is so important right now, especially. Exactly. And also it was super cool to have Jules Clegg. She's, um, Mm. she was the only like, uh, like, um, uh, American, uh, a person from the from uh, invited, but uh, I think that it was really important to have a, a representation of the trans community on on the panel because with if it's a women if if it's a women panel, not having trans representation wouldn't be actually be fair with uh, of calling it a, a women panel. You know, for me mm. at least. Sure. So. Sure. I think that it was really important. If you're going to show diversity and you're going to to show all the voices, uh, the trans community had to be there. And it, Jules was an amazing uh, was amazing because she actually transitioned while uh, being the technical lead of Valorant. Uh, so she, it it was really cool uh, her insight into into what it's like from being. Uh, living as a man in the eyes of the society to a woman and what those differences are it and and she gave like a love letter to the to the next trans folks that are going to go through that experience in the future so i think that it 
all, all of the stories of the of the of the women of the panel were were like super uh, inspirational and and emotive and and yeah, I think I, I am very proud of of them of their stories and what they did and and uh, like the one reason to be panelist is it's a moment to like sit down and, and consider all the things that are that are happening in the world that you don't even know and and it makes you a very person to be able to to consider that and and to be able to like reflect on that you know like it's, yeah. it expands your 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 views and that expanding your mind your sense of empathy taking in the sheer diversity of human experience understanding the problems these are really important necessary early steps and once you've taken them the next step it seems to me is to start doing the work of figuring out how to actually create a more sustainable and equitable world one facet of which is of course building a more sustainable and equitable games industry on that note, here's Megan Fox talking about something that came up a bunch once I learned the idea from her, the cloud of contractors model, where you have a very small core team of people making an indie game, and other folks come in and out as necessary. This solves a couple of problems in some fairly interesting ways. I'll let her talk about it, and yeah, the Zalave she mentions right at the top is Zalave Nelson Jr., who you heard from earlier. Zalave is also another studio, or well, Strange Scaffold, his studio, is also mm-hmm. another one doing this, and that's where we're working together. I believe that that is the model that's going to become more dominant. The reason it's becoming more dominant is because there's this dying ground where if you scale, uh, it's like, so I am, my, my full time is mostly just me. My partner quit her job and started working with me as an artist. So now we have that left brain, left, that virtuous pairing of left brain, right brain, which I'm hoping hmm. will work really well moving forwards. She joined for the last year of Skateboard and was helpful a ton. But still, like that size, that size, I think, is about as high as you can go before you run into trouble. Since if you go much larger than that, it, it becomes this cycle where you probably need to start taking on contract work at first. Take on contract work, you need a slightly larger studio. So you scale up so you can take contract work. Well, the next contract is that little bit larger. And that you gotta scale up again to get that work. Otherwise, I didn't offer it to you. Just for people who don't, who've never been there, who've never worked in this space, the reason, you know, the reason this happens, or one reason, is that there are people on a team making a game that are not needed every second that the game is made. This is why the contractor thing can work. So if you have full-time people, they need stuff to do because you're paying them. So that's where the contract work comes in, and you're saying that then cycles and continues. Yeah, it tends to just balloon because the nature of what the, what your studio is and how work cycles tend to work. You only need these people about one-third of the time. You need to give them work for the rest, so you tend to take on work to cover that gap. Because of the nature of how this work tends to interact with yours, you have to scale to follow that work. It's not like you can keep getting work that is just the right size for a studio. Eventually, you'll be offered a contract that's going to require an extra two or three head, and you have to scale up to take that. Because what will kill you at this scale is gaps in work. Oh, Because once you get larger, your burn rate goes up. Whereas right now, I can survive a very, very long time on essentially almost no money. Like the, the amount I make would be embarrassing to any programmer anywhere right now. But I'm fine. I don't care because I'm doing what I want. Right. But like that, you don't have that option whenever you have 10 people and you care about all of them and you pay them all what they're worth. And they're on salary all the time. So you they, they don't have a second gig. You are not their third gig. You are their only gig. And they have two kids. And you have to support them. So 
that creates a environment where your burn rate goes up and up and up. And your gap that you can survive between contracts or gigs or projects shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And you get to this point where you have to be taking any deal that's offered because if you don't, you just burn through the three months you had a buffer and now you're screwed and everyone's laid off. So you have to take the work. Usually, like maybe you'll get lucky and you'll just get offered exactly the work you need forever and okay, but it like it never happens in this virtual cycle, which is usually or virtuous cycle, which is usually referred to as golden handcuffs, tends to result in studios that scale up and up and up. While you're doing that, the games you're making scale up and up and up because it, it uh, for a lot of reasons, it's difficult to take a large studio and break it up and make like two or three or four smaller games within that studio. That's hard to explain and outside the scope of this, but the best examples I can give is there's a very good reason why EA, for instance, doesn't have 300 internal smaller teams all making tiny games. They make the games they make for obvious reasons. Or if you look at a studio like, I don't know, Dimbalb or any of the, I'm struggling to, like, I don't know, King Beasts, any current indie studio that has grown or, um, you know, among us, any of them tend to focus on just the one game for a lot of good reasons. So take that as proof evident that there is a good reason for that. The question of why it is so hard for studios to work on multiple projects at once is, as Megan says, complicated. So if you want to know more about that, I would direct you to actually the Lia B episode, uh, which was the one before hers, or perhaps the one after hers, the interview with Aaron Sanfilippo. Let's hear from him right now, though not about that, rather about procedural generation in his studio's Star Fox-like roguelike, Whisker Squadron. One of the game's more ambitious features is that the bosses are procedurally generated, not just pulled from a pool at semi-random, but built at semi-random. So how do you make randomized bosses interesting? What are the atomic units of an interesting boss fight that you can have the algorithm snap together? If you think about your favorite boss battles in games, they typically have stages and they get more difficult as time goes on and the boss has some high amount of health and, you know, kind of movement patterns that you can learn to recognize. So it's, you know, the, the two objectives in a boss fight are like survive and, and take down their health, you know, um, and then, you know, kind of advance through these stages is typically a typically an element there. So um, trying to think about how to fit that structure, but do it in, in unexpected ways. Um, and then I guess the other kind of related element is like, so you've got these two, you know, or, or some amount of like, random pool of mechanics and attacks and weapons that this boss can have, how do those combine with each other in interesting ways and then kind of like interact with your arsenal of weapons and, you know, attachments and, and your crew in interesting ways too. And yeah, I think, yeah. kind of think that's how we avoid this like 10,000 bowls of oatmeal problem, you know, <laughs> totally. it's like, you know, okay, this time it did something that's totally different than a different mechanic and, you know, your weapon also interplays with that in this way, or, you know, you've got the, you know, speed attribute is way cranked up from your upgrades. And so you can kind of like dodge these, you know, blockers that it throws out at you this way. And so elements of luck there, but also kind of like learning what's possible over time. Totally. And it, it occurs to me as you're talking that 
the basic template of Star Fox is uniquely well suited to this as well, the phase thing, because it tends to be like the, the phases such as they are in those fights tend to be like, you know, the, the, the boss has these two giant arms shooting lasers at you, you blow up the arms and then it's the core of the thing. And how would the thing behave without its big laser arms, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's grokkable in a way that a lot of multi-phase boss fights aren't necessarily right. Like, yeah. I, you know, the, the boss is on fire now, or now it summons ghosts or whatever, like those things, you know, not to say that's bad design, just that there's no way you could predict that. Whereas this thing has big arms. If I blow them up, then what? Like there's right. a, there's a, a, a native piece of storytelling there that no matter how many variations there, there are at least potentially makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting challenges there. You know, it's, uh, you know, one, it's like, you know, if you've got parts that you can blow off, how do we, how do we make those stages more intense or more interesting, you know? Um, and yeah. also how do you avoid the situation where it's like, okay, you've got this really dangerous, you know, gun that you gave it. And now you give the player the ability to blow that thing off. And now, you know, how does it, how does it kind of make up for that in other ways? Or, you know, did you just make the boss kind of boring by doing that? You know, <laughs> what is, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the neat and surprising things we got to do this year was be the first place that David Galindo of Cook Serve Delicious fame talked about Chef Squad, his Twitch native co-op game. The game is made by folks who are also streamers. The game itself, the text, gets Twitch in a way that I think other attempts at Twitch native games haven't necessarily. And David is just really into streaming as a form. So let's hear him talk about a profound time he had with watching someone else stream a video game and what that might say about what it is to play and make and watch games right now. Right at the beginning, he makes a reference to the fact that, like old broadcast TV, most Twitch streams don't get archived and are just lost to time. Which, yeah, that's weird. So one of the most fascinating things that I, I saw on a stream, again, lost to time. This doesn't exist anymore. The VOD, I, I wish it did. Tears and rain, yeah. Yeah, like I was watching uh, Elspeth Eastman. She does uh, voices for Tristana with League of Legends. Like mm, she's a voice mm -hmm. actor and wonderful, entertaining streamer. And so she started playing this game, Superliminal, which is a four-hour puzzle game like the Stanley Parable, kind of, but more puzzly, more involved, but kind of that narrative. Similar vibe, right? Game. Messes yeah. with your head and yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so she was about 20 minutes in and the, I don't know if it was the creator, but it was the head person of the game that had made it, um, came in and said, hey, this is, y'all are having fun. Here's where you can buy my game. And he starts posting his link. and. Uh, Elspeth immediately said, hey, buddy, like, I know this is your game, but I don't even know if I like your game yet. I just started playing. Let's cool it on the links. I don't like self-promotion, you know? And she kind of just put him in his place kind of thing. And he's like, whoa, whoa, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean anything by it. She goes, no, 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 we're cool. But, uh, you know, kind of telling him I'm not, this is not an endorsement of me playing your game. I'm playing it for the first time. Let's see what I think about it. And four hours later, when the credits were rolling, she was in tears because of how emotionally impactive it was. And I was in tears even watching because it was such a good stream. Mm. Everybody was like loving the game. And she makes it a point, I noticed, to retweet any time that game goes on sale. And she's like, buy this game, y'all. It's amazing. And I came away from that stream, you know, thinking what an amazing stream, what an amazing creator. I don't have to buy that game because I just watched it played, but I'll get the soundtrack. And I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me nothing. Like, did that cost him a sale because I didn't immediately buy it because I watched it on stream? I don't think so because I don't think I would have known about it before then. I did buy the soundtrack. 
But now it's kind of on my radar as to what maybe what maybe is next. And I would think that I would want to play it and experience it for the first time on my own before watching another stream. So it's really weird. Like, I don't think you can ever get a sense of what somebody takes away from watching your game on a stream. Um, it's impossible to know, but it's something that's going to happen. And you really just have to embrace it uh, in any way you can. And I, that's why I would love to make two games at the same time. You know, we're making these experimental Twitch games and making a standard single player game that is more in line with what we've done before. Um, and it's it's good to have like both feet, you know, in the water like that to kind of just be ready for whatever the future is. And watch the single player game become a hit on Twitch because it's a funny old yeah. world, right? I mean, you never know. Like it's 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 fascinating for sure. I'm going to continue the maple theme, but switch to beer to take us home here. Uh, this is an imperial stout with uh, maple syrup and vanilla beans. Real good stuff. Okay, so one of the themes that emerges when David talks about Twitch is meeting people and technology where they and it are at. Not trying to swim against the tide, but figuring out how to work with the facts of the current media ecosystem. On a similar note then, here's Mike Grichy who's working on an educational game called The Mechanical World of Dr. Gearbox, and knew from the first that he had to include stuff kids were actually into in games, like a robust character editor, like graphical production value whizbang, and like loot and stuff. Why not embed the educational material in those things? Other Others have done it, but the thing is, they, to me, they missed an opportunity to make it palatable to a kid. So what we did was we took our inspiration from them. We took our inspiration from like, what do kids love? Well, kids love, my kids love Pokemon. They like to collect critters, right? So like we, and then we looked across the board, what kind of graphics do kids like? And that one thing I'm pretty big on is nobody really put together a kid's game with the inspiration of like, not the gameplay or story, obviously, but just the setting of something like Red Dead Redemption. Like we're, Look, we're never going to get there as an indie studio, right? We don't have hundreds of millions of dollars as a budget, but that's the type of thing that I was looking at early on when I said, let's make this thing look as realistic as we can and put some fantastic kind of crazy characters within it. But our trees should look like a real world tree would look because that's what gaming engines can do right now. So we, you know, we looked at the existing games that were for kids. And what I like to basically say is, generally speaking, it looks like they were made in Flash like 15 years ago. So <laughs> everything's kind of two-dimensional. And it's, I say the word color forms, and my kids don't even know what that means. But uh, to me, it, it's, it's kind of uh, an art style that I wanted to... In that case, like I did want to rebel against that. I wanted our game to be 3D. I wanted our game to have particle effects that were pretty crazy. And, you know, because I think when you're a kid you kind of look upwards at what you're not allowed to play yet. Oh, so, sure. you know, yeah. my younger kid's looking up, he's playing Roblox. He's looking up at my older kid who's playing Fortnite. And my, we don't let my eight-year-old and my nine-year-old play Fortnite yet. My, my soon-to-be 14-year-old, he, he plays Fortnite and he plays Valorant and those types of games. And he's looking up at like Grand Theft Auto. And he's like, well, my friends are playing Grand Theft Auto. I'm like, yeah, well, you're not playing Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> my five-year-old so, nephew is is notionally obsessed with Dark Souls. And we'll talk about yeah. his his, his uh, imagined time with Dark Souls 10 or whatever. <laughs> because, you know, and partly, you know, it's the dad plays it and, and maybe even that it's spooky or whatever. But partly to your point, it's just the spectacle. It's this thing that he doesn't have access to or access yeah. to an equivalent. And of. he knows what it looks like. Totally. And, totally. and I think that was that was part of the drive for us. It was like, you know what? 
my kids and other kids their age, they know what a really good looking game looks like. Because at this point, it pretty much is indistinguishable from a good movie, or at least the very least an animated movie. And, you know, I'm looking at my kids and like, what do they love? They love Star Wars movies. They love Marvel movies. Of course, like the MCU is just redefined, you know, the, the adventure moving going experience. And that's who we're trying to appeal to. We're trying to appeal to people that are used to that stuff and have graduated to that stuff or see that stuff and want to be a part of it. That's the direction that I had given the team early on. Mike is trying to establish new best practices for educational games, basically, right? And that's that's important, having a place to begin, knowing how things are done. So what if you're entering a space or a role where that information just isn't available? Here's Masao Kobayashi of Cut to Bits, talking about how that is precisely the situation when one decides to try and be an indie games producer. Something that was really interesting about getting into indie development is that not a lot of information is really out there about how to like do any of this stuff. Like mm, there mm-hmm. is like, you know, like um, different event, uh, different, um, you know, events and, uh, you know, GDC and stuff, their talks and, but they're all kind of generalized discussions and they're not, they're not geared towards people who are actually going to start a studio. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of nitty gritty questions that are really hard to kind of understand uh, how, what people are up to. Um, and because like I came from Ubisoft that had like Ubisoft Montreal, at, when I left had like more than 3,500 employees. So no matter what you did, it was very easy to find like 30 people that did the same job you did. So you could like talk to each other and say, you know, kind of compare notes and compare you know, recipes about how to do something, you know, like how do you skin this cat kind of thing. And uh, when I went indie, like I didn't really know what to do because like I didn't work for an organization that like basically naturally lent itself to like having a lot of people that I could talk to. And as far as I could tell, there weren't a lot of kind of organizations that I could join that had a bunch of people who were running studios. Could you speculate as to why that is? Is it? Is it well, there's just not that many of us, sure, you know, sure. compared to the number of people who are making video games, uh, the number of people who are managing studios is significantly less. And on top sure. of it, like, um, especially if you, and I don't, I'm not trying to like exclude people, but if you exclude people who are either hobbyists or part-time developers, because their, their approach to this is going to be very different than like, you know, people with investment and people who, who have employees, it's even a smaller pool of people. And a lot of them like, and the ones that are successful are, uh, have probably already a small group of people that they already confer with and yeah, so as a new upstart with no real indie connection, I didn't really know what to do. So I decided to start a Discord um, called the Indie Indie Producer Discord, and basically I reached out to anyone who was a who was a producer or a um, a studio manager of a indie studio, and asked them if they wanted to talk to other people like that. And um, surprisingly pretty much everybody asked was like, yes, I would love to have a place where I could talk to people like that because I do not have one. And yeah, I was able to, you know, that, that discord now has more than 150 people and, um, it's pretty strict in terms of 
its um, uh, requirement. Like you really do have to be in a uh, leadership position uh, of a of a indie operation. Uh, we do let solo developers and people who are part time people in as well, but uh, majority of us are are uh, for the most part uh, making business decisions for a uh, you know operating business that is uh, that that is in indie games. So I think that was really another great opportunity for me to talk to other people about what they do in terms of kind of just, I mean, day-to-day -day operations as well as, you know, how do you approach things like equity? I think it's fitting that we end on a note about the future. So here's Carlos Bordeu, who was on the show mostly to talk about his studio, Ace Teams, newest game, The Eternal Cylinder, but who talked a bit at the end of that interview and now of this clip show about their next game. A lot of people have been kind of surprised because it's been 10 years since we did the, almost a decade uh, has passed since we did both Xeno Clash games and it's a pretty significant project for for us. We're doing like a, a, this is the biggest title I think we, 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 we've wow. been, been working on. I appreciate you bringing it up because I didn't know how much you were ready to talk about it. But but so so the scale of it is huge because the the previous two Xeno Clash games are not small games. No, they're not at all. I, uh, I uh, we've openly talked about the fact that Xeno Clash Two was too much for us, and that the reason yeah. that it isn't as good as the first one is because we tried to do more than we were capable. We we were coming out from the success of the first Rock of Ages and the first Xeno Clash. And we were, we kind of felt invincible, <laughs> so <laughs> we decided like sure. ah, we could do whatever we want. And uh, Xeno Clash Two was a little bit too much. Uh, I think it's a fascinating and, and kind of great game, but I totally I totally hear you that it like it doesn't succeed at everything it tries to do. So this no, is an attempt no, to sort of. No, it definitely doesn't. Yeah. It has. I, I I'm being super honest. I think it had some some things that are great and some things that are actually kind of poor that it didn't do all. all it didn't do as well as it did in the first. And that was predominantly the fact that we had to try to do so much. And I think Clash, as we're, we're working on it, is um, we're trying to do something a bit in the on the side of Xeno Clash One, where we were trying to limit the design and the scope of the project to something um, where we don't try to do too many things <laughs> but it has ballooned into a project that uh, is grander in scale than anything we've ever done Sp particularly because of the fact that we've been pretty adamant about adding multi multiplayer to it so mm. um, it is a big 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 one for us and uh, I would say it's the largest team we've had ever for for a project so yeah, if, if if anyone is interested in 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 our titles, I I, I very much uh, call you to come and, and and see the development of Clash because it's 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 a big one for us. The full title of the full title of this one is Clash Artifacts of Chaos. Is that yes, right? Yes, Clash Artifacts of Chaos. That game is one of many I am looking forward to next year. For more on that, uh, tune in next time for the year in review. This year, like last year, has been a hell of a year, but I know for me there's also been a lot to be joyful about, so I hope the same is true for you. Thank you so much for listening.
If you would like to hear any or all of these conversations in their fulsome formats, then you can do so wherever you're listening to this episode, which is to say in the podcatcher of your choice or at etaopod.com. If you'd like to support the show, and this is important, if you can do so without it being any kind of thing for you financially, then we would love that. You can do so on Patreon, Ko-fi, or Gumroad. Thank you tremendously to our current supporters with a special thanks to Carlos de los Santos and Darth Raptora, and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious Ian Kay and Lucas Cosen. This here, Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with year-round support from Francis Michelle Cannon and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from The Noun Project. The current version of our theme song is by me. You can find more music that I make at carpedemon.band. One more time, thank you to all of our guests for talking to us and all of our listeners for listening. A special thanks, of course, goes to those who support us, but those who listen without being able to or wanting to, that is also completely chill. Glad to have you here, nonetheless and even so. See you next time for the year in review. Take care till then. Here's to 2022 being, you know, better. Take care, everybody.